Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to study your word. We thank you that we are where we are in history, even though, man, there's all kind of problems living in the modern age. Uh, the day's been one of those days where it doesn't seem like anything is working the way it's supposed to. And uh, that just makes us yearn for the kingdom when everything will be set right and everything will uh, uh, be what it's supposed to be. And so uh, we thank you for your word and for your goodness and pray that you'll help us in all the ways that we need help today uh, as we look into your word. So we ask all this for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, today we'll be on pages, well, we'll be on page 14 in your notes uh, to take notes. Y'all, don't hold me to this, but I am probably going to, I am probably going to, give you another set of notes that kind of puts everything together in one place at the end after I figure out what's going on. Y'all know, I, I mean, I'm figuring this out, at, you know, kind of at the same rate y'all are. So I'm kind of working on a more developed set of notes. And secondly, if I ever teach this again, I mean, I may not have time, who knows, but uh, had to have all that in, in, in one place. So, but don't, don't hold me to that. That, that, I say that now, that could be years before I get that done. So just, that's the idea. Also, another big thing, last week we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, and we talked about the importance of repentance, um, which I talked about there, that repentance is changing the way you're thinking about things, particularly as, uh, as you're confronted with truth and the reality of God's Word. I also gave one of my favorite quotes, it's impossible to dispel ignorance when you retain arrogance, right? And I preface all that by saying, I'm going to have a time of confession and repentance just for a second. When I first was conceiving of this study uh, back in the uh, summer, my idea was, oh yeah, you know, we'll do Luke and Acts. We'll just kind of do the overview of it, see how it all fits together, give everybody something new instead of going verse by verse and all that. Now, look at where we are. We are in, we are in uh, the sixth week and we're barely, barely out of chapter three, right? <laughs> There's no way we're getting through Luke. So the repentance is, I've shifted gears entirely. I, I was talking with somebody last week, and they said, uh, I was telling them, you know, my, my goal was to go through Luke in the fall and um, Acts in the spring and just kind of hit the high points and not get bogged down in the details like I normally do. And this person said to me, Stacy, people come to your class to hear the details. They can get the big picture at church. Your students are coming for the details. And I thought... Yeah, I know that. But see, this is the thing. I didn't retain my arrogance. <laughs> I said, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. So anyway, so, so the goal is we're going to spend this year looking at Luke, right? So that gives us plenty of time to do all the detail we want to work on. Some of you be sick of it by the time we're through it, more than likely. But then we'll do this, Luke this year, and then next year I'll come back up and follow up with Acts, you know. And secondly, uh, you, you know, I just, I, I forget how massive Luke is, the gospel, and also Acts. You know, I've made the joke several times, but there are literally chapters in Luke that are longer than some of Paul's letters. So it's just incredible. And, and secondly, you know, you get into this, and I just think, I just can't skip over that. I can't just summarize that. There's so much happens in the details. And, you know, Luke... Um, Luke especially gives us a lot of detail that none of the other gospel writers give us. So um, Luke becomes such an important 
gospel. I mean, all the gospels are important. You all understand what I'm saying. But hearing things from Luke's perspective, I think, is really, really important, particularly as he ties it into the book of Acts and the work that continues on in the world after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so unless we really lay that foundation in the gospel, then we don't get all the richness when we get over to the book of Acts. So anyway, so the thing is, we're going we're gonna to spend this year focusing on Luke, um, and uh, th- that'll give us plenty of time to go through it and hit all the detail and do what we want to do without having to rush and miss things. And, and then I got to stand before the Lord and, tell, and answer, why didn't you teach that? I put that in there for you to focus on. So anyway, uh, that's the goal. I repent in sackcloth and ashes, right? And, and uh, that, that was stupid to begin with, and I should have known it. <laughs> I, th- I think I've, I've, I've told this story. Part of what's that, Joanne? <laughs> I know, right? Before I got through, what, well, and as you can see, we have not been in a rush, right? So far, we're we're. Uh, I was uh, I was uh, one of my good friends, Seth Stevens. We had gone somewhere to speak one time, and uh, or we're going somewhere to do something. I don't remember what the context of it was, but. Seth had asked the person, uh, well, how long do we have? And the lady said, y- y'all both have about 20 minutes apiece. And Seth said, he can't even do the introduction in 20 minutes. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I-, I need to remember that. So, all right, y'all, chapter four, we're going to pick up with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We-, we did just kind of a flyover to see some of the big details of this. And, and I want to do that again today. I-, I want you to see how some of these larger themes connect together. Because as I said, uh, as we've talked about a couple of different times, in fact, on the back of your map handout that we're going to be looking at in just a second, I've got this uh, thing called Luke's Spiral Thematic Narrative. And, and what I've tried to do there, and this is a very poor illustration, I've got to figure out a better way to do it. But what Luke will do is he, he takes these uh, concepts, uh, maybe it's a word, uh, but it can be a larger concept, and he'll introduce it. And he'll, he'll develop it just a little bit, and then he'll pause talking about it, and then he'll introduce another concept, develop it a little bit, and then he'll come in the next episode and tie those two things together, and then add something else to that that moves those two things along. And, then, right, he, and so he, he interweaves this narrative in a very sophisticated way. You know, and I've touched on this before. As y'all are reading through... And, and I would encourage you to reread these chapters over and over again. Try to find how it connects and knits. And, you know, we've already started to see that with some of the words. Peace is a great example. Peace is a big word that he introduces early on. And then he develops it in one chapter. And then he, he, he holds off for a little bit. And then he'll bring it back up in another one. And that word is going to be really significant for us as we go along. But he, he interweaves these themes in a way that... Is so unlike Matthew and Mark. And, you know, I've talked about that earlier. You go read Mark, and, you know, Mark is very unsophisticated. Uh, his main goal is just to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. And in order to do that, his narrative is literally, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus did this. Right? There's, there's no intertwining development in the way we have it in Luke. So... Yeah, he's far more just let's get to the point, let's get to the point, let's get to the point. And that, of course, is probably for his audience, you know, which also makes me think that Luke has in mind, as he writes the Theophilus, probably a little bit more sophisticated of an audience, right? People that are going to enjoy not only, well, I shouldn't say, yeah, enjoy, that's a good word. It's a key word for Luke, in fact. Anyway, uh, hmm, 
I never thought about that. My, my, my mind skipped beats on me because I hadn't thought about the fact that just reading the gospel itself becomes a joy in and of itself. Uh, I've got to take a note on that and think about that a minute. Uh, but Luke is probably writing to people that are, that are going to enjoy the way he tells the story just as much as they get out of what he's, you know, the, the central points that he's trying to, to draw in together for us. And so we'll see that a lot. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. He's, he's far well educated, you know. He's been hanging out. I mean, you know, the, the two, now this is going to sound awful. You all know what I'm talking about. But literally two smartest men in the Bible, well, three, Jesus, I mean, come on. I mean, we, we throw that in, you know. But in, in the New Testament, Paul and Luke, they're probably the most educated of all the people that are there. And that's what makes their work so dense. And I mean, you read through, read through the letter to the Romans. And the next time you read through it, just think of this. Paul is dictating that to his scribe, Tertius, who's writing that down. Right? It's not like Paul has got a word processor in front of him and he writes a paragraph and he says, oh, and then later he can go back and say, oh, I need to move that up here. Nope, that's all coming out of his mind. And it's unbelievable, the, the, the sophistication of that letter, you know. Uh, I can, y'all have heard me talk. I can barely get out three sentences without having to go back and correct what's going on and try to make some sense out of it. So these, you know, these people, their abilities are just astounding. And of course, the Holy Spirit factors into that as well, all right? The Holy Spirit guiding and, and directing and so forth. Um, now, let's, let's pick up in Luke 4. Luke 4, 1, uh, Jesus' temptation. Uh, we, we looked at that last week. Uh, the devil comes and he tempts Jesus during the 40 days that he is in the wilderness. And we tied that into the fact <clears throat> that you have, um, you have Jesus' genealogy at the um, end of chapter 3 that goes from Jesus all the way back to the son, uh, Adam, uh, who is the son of God. And there we, we tied in the theme that uh, unlike Adam, right, Adam failed his test in the garden, Adam and Eve specifically, uh, they fail their tests. Uh, Jesus is the one who overcomes uh, in his temptation. And I, I gave you a handout on temptation. Y'all can take a look at that. But there are uh, three, three themes that those temptations kind of play into. But let, let me just say that the overarching huge idea uh, that, that you have with Jesus' temptation is that um, the devil is tempting him to become the Messiah in a way that Father God has not planned for, right? Or that Father God would not desire him to do. And that is to be this spectacular, miracle-working, look at me, I'm the Messiah, just be amazed type kind of thing. And, and, and we know that that's contrary to what God would have him do because as we get into his ministry today, Jesus is going to start performing miracles. And almost every time he does something, He's going to tell whoever's healed or whatever. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Just go on and do this, but don't get all crazy and go telling everybody. But, you know, the word spreads and people are coming to him and whatnot. And so uh, part, part of the reason for that is um, the, Lord wants, uh, the Lord wants people to come to him not just for the spectacle of his ministry, right? And, and we all know this. It's, it's very easy for human beings to get wrapped up into the spectacle of things and miss the heart of things altogether. 
That's why we have had in the last four or five years all of these uh, very prominent, uh, famous Christians who have fallen mightily and terribly and drug churches down with them and everything else because they built their ministry around spectacle and around the cult of personality, right? And you can't do that and remain in a state of humility and graciousness, right, the way the Lord would have. So this temptation, and by the way, I I don't think I mentioned this last week, but uh, when the devil approaches Jesus, uh, and let me, this is really important, and I want to touch on this. In 4.3, when the devil starts to talk to Jesus, at, at least as we have it here in Luke's version of it, uh, and this is true in, in the other temptation versions as well. Luke 3, it says, Now the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Uh, in Greek, the if you are is not a statement of uh, if in the sense of, well, let's find out if you're the Son of God, right? What the devil is saying is this. It's very clear in Greek. Since we both know that you're the Son of God, then do this, Right? So the devil is not asking Jesus to prove that he's the son of God to him. The devil knows he's the son of God. And so he's trying to tempt Jesus into doing things that are beyond the scope uh, with different means than what Father God would have him fulfill his ministry in. Right? And that's always the temptation. to, to uh, and Y'all, <laughs> I don't even want to say this because it's so terrible. The devil's temptation is always to do the wrong thing in the wrong way, right? But sometimes it it looks like doing the right thing in the wrong way, right? And that one is far more subtle, right? Ah, this is a good thing to do. Why don't you do it this way? But that's not the way we have. And that's really what he does with Adam and Eve, right, in the garden uh, uh, in in a very subtle way. So here the devil is is calling Jesus... um, identity as the son of God and drawing that up and saying, listen, since we know who you are, just just do this. Take take care of your hunger. Right. Um, and so Jesus thwarts him at every turn with scripture um, and with uh, w- with his reasoning and so forth. And then we read and we'll, we'll come back to this in 413. Uh, as that concludes, this is really important. It says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, until a more opportune time. Um, as Jesus begins his ministry, he is immediately going to go to battle with the demons and the unclean spirits. And those demons and unclean spirits are seen to be in league with Satan. Uh, several times, uh, we're going to have this mention of somebody who has an illness, and it says that they were enslaved by Satan or they were oppressed by the devil, uh, those, those types of things. But uh, the devil is going to return again uh, for more opportunities for temptation and for leading astray and so forth. So we're just going to put a little sticky note by verse 13. Remember, okay, he's going to show up again before this whole thing is, is over with. And so we'll come back and talk about that uh, as we get toward the end of Jesus' ministry because some important things happen. Uh, you know, this whole story begins with Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And then it's going to end with the disciples being tempted by the devil and being oppressed by the devil uh, at the end. So we'll, we'll come back and talk about that a little bit later. Um, the devil can't get Jesus, but that doesn't mean he's not going to get some disciples, right, along the way. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that as we come back. Now, verse 14 and 15, 4, 14 and 15, this is where Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, this is where Jesus begins his ministry. 
It says, Now Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now, let me stop there just a second. If you'll, if you'll look at your map, let me, let me talk about a few things here that are significant about Jesus beginning his ministry here. If you look at the other Gospels, uh, it is clear that Jesus spends most of his time in Galilee uh, doing his ministry. But on your map, let me turn right here so I can kind of see. On your map, what I wanted you to see is, is, is if, you look at, uh, if you look at the Gospel of John, most scholars think that the first eight or nine chapters of John are the most chronological for the early events of Jesus' ministry. Because if you remember, immediately after Jesus is baptized uh, by John, he begins his ministry down here in Judea. And some of the first things that he does is down here in Jerusalem. Uh, you have the first cleansing of the temple early on. He's there for several of the high holy days, feast days. Uh, so in John, we have the first uh, part of Jesus' ministry that takes place down here uh, closer to Jerusalem, down here in, in Judea. And also on the map, you can see that it's divided into the larger place names. You've got Judea there. Uh, up from Judea is Samaria. We're going to talk about that. You've got Decapolis over here on the other side of the Jordan River, the east side of the Jordan River. Um, uh, the west, yeah, east side of the Jordan River, uh, Perea. Uh, then up north, you've got the Galilee area. Uh, Nazareth is in that area. You can see that. Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, where that's going to be kind of the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. We're going to see that mentioned today in several of the texts. So uh, Luke includes nothing about Jesus' Judean ministry down here, which are in the early days of his ministry. He just picks up uh, as Luke, uh, I'm sorry, as Jesus has gone back north and focuses kind of the, the main part of his ministry up here in uh, Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, in Capernaum and around the Sea of Galilee. So many things are going to happen there. Um, and so uh, I, I just let you know that because you know, when we, when we start there in Luke 4, 14, 15, it seems like that he just, this is where he is literally starting his ministry, but it's not necessarily, uh, that, that he does things down here. And again, it's, it's, it's the point of, um, we're going to see several things in here that makes me think Luke is aware, well, I mean, we know he's aware of Mark and Matthew, because there are ways that he borrows from Mark that's very, very evident in terms of the order of his material and the way he words some of his material and whatnot. But even uh, there's some hints that we're going to get at in just a second. I'll show you that uh, Luke is aware of these other Gospels. You know, John hasn't been written yet, so he doesn't have that. But he's at least aware of Matthew and Mark. And so as he writes, he, he's not... And, and again, this is the way all ancient history writers taught. They, he wasn't as... Uh, caught up in giving every detail of Jesus' ministry, right, in a strict chronological order. He's trying to make points and weave the narrative together in a way that he can make his theological points. And I'll, I'll give you a great example of this, you know. Uh, if, if you look back in chapter 3, uh, just for a second, and you, you can see this played out, and we, and we can track along because we know what he's doing here. If you look at the end of chapter 3, 
and the end of John the Baptist's ministry, he says uh, in 18, 19, and 20, Luke says, talking about John, and so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved for him by Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things he had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Right? So John's locked up in prison. Now look at the very next verse. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, right? See, that can't be a strict chronological sequence. Because John can't be in prison and also baptizing Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? So he tells us kind of the, the nutshell story of John the Baptist. And then he goes back to talk about how that ties into Jesus' ministry. So, so he's moving backwards and forwards in time. He's just a good storyteller. And so he, he, he clumps this material uh, more so around themes and ideas rather than he does a strict chronology. Does that make sense? Right? He's not like Mark telling us now this, now this, now this, now this. He's trying to give us these huge ideas and tie them all together and link them together. And so that's what makes his, you know, the way he lays this out far more sophisticated. And he's expecting a lot out of us, you know, to make these connections and to follow along. But he's done it in a way that it's fairly easy to do. If you're, if you're reading and listening and following along with what he says, uh, we can track along with it without any problems. So I just wanted to mention that uh, because, again, <clears throat> it's only by looking at all four of the Gospels that we get you know, a fairly complete uh, view of Jesus' ministry. Because some of them leave things out, others include others that the others don't, right, and so forth and so on. And so uh, we're only trying to focus primarily on Luke, right, and not do the comparison of why did Luke do this and not that, and, you know, in comparison to John and Matthew and Mark and the others. So anyway, uh, but I I did just want to make you aware of that because it sounds like Jesus just starts. But as we pick up in Nazareth, he's already a little ways into his ministry, right, and and, and we'll see that uh, as, as we get into it. So verse 16, it says, Now he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Uh, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now that that there's a key right there, as was his custom. Right. So he's already been doing this a lot. Right. He's already been going to synagogues and teaching. And that's going to become very, very evident uh, as we as we get into this first narrative. Um, Luke places this narrative the way he does, because uh, this is going to set up all the elements for the ongoing controversy that Jesus is going to have from this point forward. And so I think that's why he starts his ministry right here to, in effect, say, listen, Jesus had trouble right from the beginning. (laughs) And we need to understand the shape of his ministry because it's always really been the same. And so we'll, we'll see that as we go. But he's already been preaching in the synagogues. And we'll, we'll, we'll have another mention of that here in just a second in a really weird way. Uh, verse 17, it says, now the, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he, unrolled, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. In the first century, uh, most synagogues would have scrolls of each of the books of the Old Testament, or, or maybe collections, you know, probably... The, the, the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses, those would have been written down on one scroll, maybe. Sometimes they might have been on separate ones. And, a, um, and the synagogues would only have a collection of what they were able to afford, right? Uh, Nazareth is a village in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there, scholars think, based on the uh, 
archaeological excavations that at the time of Jesus, there was probably about 400 people living here. Think about that for a minute. I've got 400 people living in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? I mean, sometimes, again, we think about the movies and we think, you know, Nazareth is this place got thousands of people in it. No, it's a real small thing, right? Uh, I mean, the, the, the world population in the first century is, you know, only a fraction of what it is today. Um, uh, Rome, Rome by the end of the first century had 1.5 million people living in it, right? At, at the end of the first century. The next time that you're going to have a, a city that would have that many people in it would be a thousand years later, right? So Rome was incredible for its time. Every, every, other, every other place was small, you know. It's, it, it's, it's not like what we think about, you know. Uh, so here, here in this, they, you know, they probably don't have enough money to have a lot of scrolls. And the fact that they've got Isaiah points to the fact that already they're thinking, okay, if we're going to have a scroll, let's get Isaiah. That, that one is really important. And the other amazing thing, now remember, this is all written out on a scroll, right, in uh, Hebrew. And the practice in the first, uh, had become in the first century that, that whoever was speaking or teaching would get up and they would read from the scroll in Hebrew. And then you would have somebody who would translate it into Aramaic uh, as they were listening because the people didn't speak Hebrew anymore. Right? They had, after the Babylonian captivity, the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in was just not spoken freely. Uh, Imperial Aramaic had become the major language. And so the people uh, in in Israel, that's the language they would have spoken. And so, you know, it it would be like us getting a Bible and it's written in Old English. You know, you you could probably pick up on some things. Some things would tick, but you really need it to be translated into your own language. So uh, Jesus, as he opens the scroll, he he rolls it out. And and again, now, now think about this. Think about how long Isaiah is. And it's written on a scroll by hand in Hebrew. There's no chapters. There's no verses, right? And he opens this thing up to exactly where he wants to be. That's no small feat in and of itself, right? Imagine if I gave you all a Bible that didn't have any chapters or verses in it and asked you to look up, hey, let's look up Luke, you know, that part where Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah. We'll be sitting here flipping for a while, right? A scroll. That's your scroll because you, right, you got to open it up and move part of it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Uh, but, but the point is, is that um, Jesus opens up to this specific passage for a specific purpose, right? This isn't ha- something that happens willy-nilly, just by accident. He, he wants to read from this passage. And this is what he reads, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Um, It was common that when rabbis would teach, they they would read uh, standing up, and then when it came time to teach, they would sit down to teach. Uh, That was common practice. It says, Now the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, where did this boy come from? Right? Where, 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 where is this eloquent speaking coming from on this? Now, just uh, a couple of things. He quotes from Isaiah 40. Uh, 
I'm, I'm sorry, this is uh, Isaiah uh, 61. Isaiah 40 was the reference to John's ministry. This, this is Isaiah 61. And I'm not going to go into detail on this, but um, the text that we have here in Luke, if you go and you read this in your Old Testament, it's going to read slightly differently. Uh, there, there's a line that's left out about uh, healing up the brokenhearted and whatnot. But this text does uh, fit with, with other Greek versions that were available at the time of Jesus. So probably Luke, like Paul, he is putting in a Greek version of the Old Testament because he's writing to a Greek audience. Uh, and so there, there's a little bit of difference here. Also, this, um, you know, there, there's some debate over whether or not this is all that Jesus read or if this is just a reference to remind us what's in Isaiah 61, that he might have read a lot more out of Isaiah 61, right? And, and oftentimes we know that that's the case, that this, these verses are just a placeholder for us to then go back and read Isaiah 61 to see what all's going on. And so uh, I, th- I think that may be what's going on here. But the important thing, as you see, this, this, this passage that he reads, um, and some of the things that are interesting about it, they define what his ministry is going to be. Everything about his ministry from this point forward. Uh, a couple of things. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Right Now that, that probably ties in to his baptism by John, also his temptation in the wilderness. As he comes out of the temptation, he is full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And a really important thing, um, and, and we can't see this in this text, but you will see it in the Hebrew um, translation of the Old Testament, right? If you go look this up in your Old Testament in Isaiah 61, there in verse 18 where it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, uh, the because he... Has anointed me in the Hebrew text. There, it's it's the divine name. You get the title of the Lord at the first part of verse eighteen. The Spirit of the Lord. That's that's his title. The Lord is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to do this, that, and the other. Right, the divine name, the one true name of God. Right. Uh, there, there, there in verse eighteen. Uh, if you go back and you look at the Hebrew text and even your translation. Uh, if, you, if you go look that up, Isaiah 61, and you get down to the second part of that, it, it'll, uh, in, the, in your translation, it'll probably have because the Lord has anointed me, and that Lord will be in small caps. Back, not here in Luke, but in, the, in your Old Testament. And that, as you all know, the small caps is the name of the Lord himself, right? The Lord God, Yahweh. And uh, to me, that's an important connection because Jesus is linking himself, right, to the one true God. And, of course, we all know who the Lord is here, right? I mean, th- this is not anybody other than the one true God, right? The Father of Jesus is the one true God who revealed himself in the Old Testament Scriptures as Yahweh. But here, uh, he's, he's making that very uh, pointed uh, fact that the Lord God, right, the one true God is the one who has anointed him, right, set him apart. And... Y'all know, right, that word anointed is critical. Uh, the word anointed in Hebrew, Mashiach, the root of it, is the term that we get the term Messiah from. And Christ, right, is the Greek form of the Hebrew term Messiah. So this, he has anointed me. 
That's just the verbal form of Christ. Right? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. So this, this text is just showing us, yeah, this is true on every, every sense of the word. But this text has something interesting for us. Because what we would expect to happen here, and if you go back and you look at the word, right? The Lord has anointed me to do this, that, and the other. More often than not, particularly in the later prophets, it's about the anointing of the king who's going to come. Uh, the son of David. The heir to the Davidic throne who's going to come and, and do all kind of things. But primarily it's about restoring Israel, redeeming Israel. But look at what happens here. And this is out of Isaiah 61. He's anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. Right? Before he's going to become king in power, he's, he is anointed to be the great healer of the land. Right? And that's the good news. And, and Luke is going to focus more, almost more than any other gospel writer on all of Jesus' healings and his power over the demonic realm and whatnot. Because that's one of the first things that the Lord has anointed him to do, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to pro- proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Right? Proclamations of liberty, right? good news, liberty. Uh, Giving sight back to the blind, right? It's all this about freeing people, healing people, right? Doing all the things that Jesus is going to do. And then verse 19, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, now this stops short. If you go read that text in Isaiah, there's something, <laughs> something that comes immediately after that uh, where he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of his great judgment. That this coming of salvation is, as we've seen earlier, it's right in line with the judgment of God. Right? But not yet. Right? Not yet. Before the judgment comes, this offer of salvation and healing has to go out. And that's where we are now. You know, you, you and I are still in the midst of this ministry that is one of, of, of preaching and healing, but not one of judgment. That's not what we're called to do. And boy, I, y'all know, if you've read through Luke, the disciples are going to struggle with this. Right, uh, very early on here in just a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to be going through Samaria, and he runs in, runs into some of the trouble, and and the boys say, "Hey, Lord, should we pray and just have fire fall down out of heaven and burn these people up where they are?" Right? And Jesus is like, "No, it's not what we're here to do." Right? Listen, let me tell y'all one more time what we're doing. Uh, so here, this 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 whole quote is a great summary of everything that Jesus is going to do, and again. In his very sophisticated way, Luke is going to start to intertwine this with these other things that he's about to show us, the healings. Uh, Jesus is literally going to give sight to the blind, right? He's going to proclaim the good news everywhere he goes. And so we'll we'll see him develop that as we we go through here. Uh, Now, let me stop there. Any questions or comments on that so far? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody could do that. Really, the way they talked to him and got mad. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, and it's, and it's, and it's all the more problematic uh, that uh, for people, it's very difficult for people to hear the truth that think they know what the truth is. 
And, and as Jesus confronts these people, you know, to the poor and the outcast and those who are on the fringes, he's very gracious. But to those who think they know better, man, he really ties into them. You know, he really lets them have it. And we're going we're gonna to see that as we go on. But, but even the way he lets them have it is, is in a gracious way where he tries to show them you're thinking about this all wrong, you know. And, and let, me, let me just prove it to you. We're gonna have some, in fact, we're going to have an episode here in, in just a little while that's really going to make that point to them, you know. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Right. Yeah. His emphasis was so different. Yes. That's why so many couldn't accept who he was. Absolutely. He wasn't going to be a conquering hero. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's, that, that's another interesting thing about him quoting from Isaiah 61. Uh, as you all know, in, in the second half of Isaiah, starts in chapter 40, uh, you have the four suffering servant songs. Right? And... Uh, I, in fact, I should give you all a handout on this. Boop, let me take a minute on it. Uh, you got the four suffering servant songs, right? And we're, we're most familiar with the one, you know, where, where uh, the servant comes and he has been anointed, or he has been, uh, he suffers for the welfare of the people, right? He comes as a, truly as a suffering servant. Everybody misses the fact that after that, in the last several chapters of Isaiah, you've got four other songs and scholars often call them the songs of the anointed conqueror, the anointed warrior. This one in Isaiah 61, it is, uh, it's the second one. It, it's the second one of these anointed conquerors. And those are interesting because it takes up the themes of the, uh, the suffering servant, but shows that after the servant comes to bring healing, he turns into a warrior to bring judgment. Same person. The one who's the suffering servant also becomes the judge, the judge of all. And he comes in fiery wrath in that fourth and final uh, victorious uh, warrior song. And so this, is, this one is the, first, uh, the second of those victorious warrior songs. But what this warrior is going to do before he brings the wrath is he brings healing. He offers healing. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And so here... Uh, it's interesting that he quotes right from that. And again, you know, all these, all these quotes that we've had uh, in the last couple of chapters, several of them have been from those last chapters of Isaiah that focus on God's redemption of Israel, what it's going to look like when he begins to redeem the nation of Israel. And tied in with that redemption is the idea of judgment. And, and again, we'll come back around to that. But that's not the focus now. The judgment is not the focus. Now it's a time of healing and restoration. And so Jesus says that. He says, uh, <laughs> today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? Now the people understand exactly what he's saying. Like by him saying, he has sent me, he sent me, he sent me. Jesus said, I'm the one. I'm the one that's been sent to do this very thing. Now, um, and notice the, the, the people at first, they're, they're, they're amazed and they marvel at his gracious words. Verse 22 and they say, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, they're, uh, this, is, this is a good kind of amazement, you know? Like, man, we, we grew up all around this boy. Where did he come from? Right? Which, again, makes me think Jesus, as he's grown up, he hadn't been out preaching in the court square, doing all kind of things that would draw attention. And people would be like, well, yeah, that's Jesus. You know, he's always done that. These people that he's grown up around, they're like, who is this? Where did he come from? 
Right? Later, they're going to say, wow, well, not, not in Luke, but in the other Gus writers, they're, you know, the people are going to be like, hey, man, he's not like the scribes and Pharisees. He teaches with power. Right? Uh, and so here, they're amazed at it. But then, in typical Jesus fashion, he's going to ruin everything. What, look at this right here. Um, now, and again, I, I, I want to remind you something, because this is so important here early on. If you remember when Simeon made his prophecy, or made, gave his blessing, uh, and stated, uh, uh, blessed Mary, uh, this is in Luke 2.34. If you remember what Simeon said, he, Simeon says this to Mary. He says, behold, this child, talking about Jesus, is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. So Jesus has been set apart for the rising and the falling of many in Israel, which means he's going to cause a division among the people. That's what he's going to do right here. And again, I think probably at this point, some other things have happened that precipitate this. But look look at what he says in verse 23. It almost doesn't seem to make sense in the context. Verse 23. uh, Now, he also said to them, uh, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. Now, stop right there with me for just a second. We're in chapter 4. Where has Luke mentioned Capernaum up to this point? Where have we seen Jesus do anything in Capernaum so far? Have we? It's the first mention of it, right? I mean, Jesus has started his ministry. So again, we see that he's already been doing things, right? He, he's already been doing work. Uh, and, and we know, you know, in the context of John, he's already been performing miracles and doing things throughout the land. I mean, the minute he begins to preach... He's also performing miracles, right? Turning of water to wine, the healing, uh, giving sight to the blind and so forth. So here there's an assumption that Luke makes that his audience is going to know that Jesus has already been out preaching and teaching miracles, right? In other words, he can assume that people know enough about Jesus' ministry to know that this is not the beginning of everything, that he's already been preaching and teaching and healing and so forth. So uh, he writes as if people would know the information that was already in the Gospels, you know, Matthew and Mark probably, that were already in existence. But yeah, the, the first time I read that, I'm like, wait, did, did, I, did I miss something? Where did, he, where did he do something in Capernaum? And not in Luke, right? It's just assumed. Uh, but the, the, the setup is this. Uh, where Jesus says, physician, heal yourself. That, that's probably a proverb that means, well, if you're here to do that, Jesus, put your money where your mouth is, Right? Let us see some of that. Let's, let's see what you got going on. But instead, he, 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 he turns it into this thing uh, that's going to set up right, the flow of his ministry. Verse 24, it says, Now he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. But it, so he assumes that Jesus assumes that they know the story of Elijah and that they probably would have. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Uh, I, I'm sorry, there's a period to a woman who was a widow. Now, if you know anything, the land of Sidon is not in the land of Israel. 
that's a Gentile nation. This woman is a widow. She's a Gentile. If you go back and look at that story. So here's the thing. At the time of the prophet Elijah, when there was the great famine, nobody in Israel was blessed. Only a Gentile woman and a Gentile widow. Right? Again, it, that we're, we're not used to thinking these terms, but a, a widow is somebody who is on the fringes of society. This is, somebody, this is a lady who has no protection, right? Her, her husband's gone, no stature within the land. You're in real trouble if you're a widow without somebody to take care of you. And this is the only person that's blessed, an outca- well, somebody on the fringes who's a woman. She's also a Gentile. That's critical. Jesus is going to be dealing with a lot of Gentiles and a lot of women, and especially by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts. So this, this is something that starts to turn things over on its head. Uh, verse 27, uh, another example. He says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Uh, another great prophet. Uh, during his time, these people could have been healed. There were many lepers in Israel, but there was only one that was healed. <laughs> That's Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. All right, another Gentile that's healed, right? So he's given them these examples of, y'all, over and over, God has extended blessing to Israel, but you've missed out on it, and instead that blessing has gone to the Gentiles. That is exactly where we're headed at the end of Luke and Acts, right? Israel is going to reject Jesus as their Messiah, and as such, the good news about him is going to go to the ends of the earth. And the Gentiles are going to wind up responding in far greater numbers than the people of Israel do. Uh, Israel cutting themselves out from the blessing. In fact, when we get over to the preaching of the apostles, uh, one of the things, is it Peter or Paul? I, I can't remember which one now, those mixed together. But, but one of them, uh, as they've been preaching to Israel, uh, some Jews, and they reject it. They say, well, since you consider yourselves to be unworthy of eternal life, we're going to go on to the Gentiles. Right? In other words, you're the one who's cutting yourself. We've offered and offered and offered and offered, and yet you won't accept, so we're going to go to the Gentiles, right? which was God's plans all along. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was, I was thinking about that this morning, because we touched on this a little bit uh, this last week, uh, but repentance and faith, all these things that Jesus is going to point the people to, there's, a, there's a, a step before that that you have to be a person of humility before you can make those jumps into, oh gosh, I've got to change the way I'm thinking about this. Whoever I thought the Messiah was, this Jesus is not that. He's something else. And I've got to get in line with that because He is the Son of God. He is the true Messiah. So whatever I thought was going on, that's not what's actually going on, right? Very proud. And also, a, a great example, you all know, a lot of you have done a lot of prophetic study with me in here. We look at Revelation. And over and over, I say in that, just like here, that no prophecy is 100% clear until it's 100% fulfilled. These people had the wrong interpretations of how it would all come together. And that's why I say anybody that's ever written the pro- uh, commentary on Revelation is wrong, Right? When the Lord fulfills things, it's always in a way that nobody could have clearly foreseen. And in a more glorious way than anybody could have foreseen. And that's what these people are wrestling with. They have preconceived notions of what's supposed to happen. And that, and that makes them miss what's actually happening, right? <laughs> Again, you cannot dispel 
ignorance when you retain arrogance. Don't you right? think that's a trait of the Jewish people? Yeah, well. Full pride. Yeah. And they've really, and they've inherited that. Yeah. They have always felt they were special in God's sight. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it is and it's 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 a culture based on tradition, and I, I would say that that that's not just true of the of the people of Israel. That's true of all humanity, where there is a strong tradition and a strong story of who we are, and there's no greater example of that as Americans, right? Yes. By golly, you can tell Americans a lot of things, except you're wrong, <laughs> right? And the minute that pe- a minute that an American hears that, they will fight tooth and nail to prove you that you're wrong, even if they are wrong. The last three years have just been a great example of that, <laughs> right? I mean, just a, it's just been a stunning example of don't tell an American they can't do something, because by golly, I will fight no matter how ignorantly, stupidly, willfully I'm running into the wrong. You're not going to tell me I'm not going to do that. That's a trait of human nature, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the pride, you know. Oh gosh, oh my goodness. Yeah, you know, and I, I, uh, I go through this process, and I see this over and over again as we're studying the Bible. About fifty percent of that process is getting past what you thought it was going to say, or what you thought it had to mean, in order to actually hear what's going on. And and with that. All of us are brought up, you know, all of us are trained, and this, y'all know what I'm talking about. All of us usually are trained in a tradition that got a lot of things wrong, and we have to spend most of our life going through that deprogramming to get in line with the truth of the word, not the truth of tradition, right? And that's what these people are struggling with. It's always that battle against tradition and what we've been taught, and oh man, that's a hard one. I mean, that's a really hard one. It's an American slogan. Yeah, that's right. Now, look, uh, so, so Jesus tells them those two examples. And again, this is what his ministry is going to do. He is going to shut out uh, those who think they've got it figured out and those who are the Gentiles and the women and those who are on the, out, the, you know, the outskirts of society, those who don't have power or privilege, right? It's the poor that he's going to come proclaim the good news to, right? It's going to be uh, the captives, the people who are in prisons and whatnot, those who are blind, right? Uh, those who are oppressed, boy, that, that's a big word. We're going to hear about a lot of people being oppressed by the unclean demonic spirits as we go along, oppressed by the devil, uh, those types of ideas. But if you, uh, if you think about all those people that are mentioned there, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, all of those people have one thing in common. They cannot do anything to get out of the situation they're in, in and of their own strength and power, Right? You have to have somebody to come and deliver you. So that means I have to have hope in a deliverer who's going to come and deliver me from this situation. But if you don't know that you need a deliverer, what good is he going to do? Right? If you don't know that you're sick, are you ever going to go to the doctor? Right? And that's exactly the point Jesus is going to make here in a couple of chapters. Listen, I, I, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call those who are sick. And who know they need a physician, right? I, I, would, I, I would paraphrase it this way. I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. I came to call those who know they're sick, right? Because, again, that's the only way you're going to be able to hear what Jesus is laying out here. And so here, as the people reject him, he, he makes that very clear. 28, 29, <laughs> imagine this. 
uh, when they heard these things, they all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he just went away. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Luke doesn't attach any miraculous significance to it, but clearly there's something going on there, right? They're all in a bustle. They're going to throw him off the cliff and they get to the edge and like, where'd Jesus go? He just walked right out of their midst. I love the humor in that, you know. Um, then, uh, verse 31, we, we get the first of a series of healings. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can understand why they wouldn't be very happy with yeah. what he said, but I don't understand why it would cause them to be filled with so much rage that they'd want to throw them off the cliff. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, well, uh, there is probably more going on here. You know, in the background, if, if you go look at this similar account and the other gospel writers, it seems like Jesus has done a, a few more things to get people really bent out of shape about what's going on here. But the, the way Luke condenses the story, he wants to make the specific point that Jesus makes here. And that is the, these blessings, right, the healing and the recovering of sight and all that, that's going to be offered to Israel. They're going to reject it and they're going to want to kill him. Right. That's the theme that goes over and over again. And Jesus even goes so far as to say that if you're going to be my disciple, that's the pattern you're going to be in, too. If, if they hated me, they're going to hate you, too. Right. And that's what we're going to see in Acts. Right. They're going to go out and they're going to preach and they're going to be hated. And so on. so so Luke probably condenses the narrative for us to make that point, because that's going to be a major theme. And, and also um, also, I think that's a really important thing because uh, I think I've said this before in Paul's several of Paul's letters, Ephesians, but especially in Romans, he at some point touches on the idea of, well, well wait a minute, what happened to Israel? If, if all these promises and blessings were meant for Israel, then why did they reject? And why have the Gentiles been brought in? And is there any hope for Israel? Is there any future hope for Israel? And Luke, Luke's gospel, and, and I, I think I can prove this as we go along. Luke's gospel does exactly what Paul does. And remember, Luke has spent a lot of time with Paul. Luke does what Paul does, and he says, this is why Israel has rejected right, the Messiah. And that's also opened the door that the Gentiles would be engrafted into the promises, like Paul talks about in Romans 19 and 11. But also, we're going to see Jesus himself alluding to the fact that, but that doesn't mean that's the end of the story for Israel. There's going to be a time of redemption still left for Israel. That, that what we have in the gospel with Jesus, that's not the end of the story of Israel. So hang on to that. And that's going to be developed in Acts as well. That just because they've rejected doesn't mean that's the end of the story, right? And so that, that's a really important thing, massively important thing. And, and we'll see that develop as we go along. Now, the, the next part here, he starts, this is a good place, uh, he, he, starts to, uh, he starts to perform uh, these miracles. And, and let me just, again, let's just look at the summary of this. Um, 431 through 37, he's going to heal a man in the synagogue who has an unclean spirit. So there's a healing of somebody who's oppressed by a demon. Then 38 and 39, he's going to heal Simon's mother-in-law. And notice, again, 38 says, He rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Where has Simon showed up in the gospel yet? Nowhere. He assumes everybody's going to know who he's talking about, right? 
And that, that he, I, 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 almost every time I mention this in class, people are like, what? I've never noticed that before. This is Simon's mother-in-law, right? What does that tell us about Simon? This is Peter, right? Simon Peter. What does that tell us about Peter? He has a wife. And Paul mentions the fact in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, that Peter's wife would, would travel around with him as he was doing his missionary, missionary work and whatnot. You know, we, we, we tend to think of these guys being single and, you know, going out, but that's not the case here, right? So he, he heals Simon's mother-in-law's wife, <clears throat> which means he's already spending time with Simon, right? He's already hanging out with Peter and the other fishermen. And that's critical because we're not going to get the call of Peter until chapter 5. Then uh, 40 through 41, there's just a summary that you have Jesus preaching in all the other synagogues uh, around, and the demons are saying, you're the son of God, but he would rebuke them and not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Uh, And then you get the summary point here, uh, 42 and 44. It says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. We're we're, going to see that several more times. Jesus is often going to desolate places to pray. Luke mentions Jesus' prayer life more than any other gospel writer. Jesus is praying at the beginning of his ministry. In fact, the first time that we see him, you know, come into the fore is when he's baptized by John. And it says, as he was praying, that's when the Holy Spirit descended on him. Uh, he he, He will go out into these desolate places to pray. Uh, the Spirit led him into the wilderness for forty years to be temp- uh, for forty days to be tempted. Right? I have a feeling that Jesus probably was thinking, "Oh, we're going to go out there to pray." I'm sure he did, right? But there's something else going on there as well. So prayer is really important, and he'll often withdraw to these desolate places to get away from the people, probably. And no one knowing what's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, constant. Yeah, day in, day out, right? Uh, It says now, uh, middle part of 42, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Uh, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That's the whole realm, uh, the whole whole area there probably of of, uh, Israel. We'll talk more about that next week. Now, I I wanted you to see all that, and we'll come back next week and pick up in verse 31 of chapter 4 and talk about those healings in some detail. But I want you to see that this uh, this first episode of Jesus teaching and preaching shows how he's proclaiming the good news all throughout Israel, right? Healing and proclaiming and preaching. But yet we've already got this, this theme set up that he's going to be rejected by the people. Even his own hometown rejects him, right? They don't believe that he is who he is. And as we get into it, his, whole, his own family is going to reject him, right? One of the things that I think about is that we know that James, his half-brother, does not become a believer until after the resurrection, right? Man, think about that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's the old saying? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt, right? <laughs> they, they knew Jesus too well, maybe. So, All right, y'all, we'll, we'll pick up right there next week. Let, let me pray for us, and we will turn loose here. 
Father, we uh, thank you for all the ways that you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and carry us along. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunities we have to read it and study it together. And I pray that you'd bless everybody who's part of these classes, uh, all of us, me included, uh, with a deeper understanding of you and your purposes and the work that you did through our Lord Jesus that is so far removed historically from us. But yet as we read these narratives and uh, bring these things alive for us again through the work of your spirit that, that we can see and understand and comprehend literally how Jesus changed everything and how we are where we are today because of these events that took place 2,000 years ago. And so uh, we thank you for giving us such a, a treasure trove of knowledge uh, about you and your purposes and your work, about our Lord Jesus, about the work of the Holy Spirit, and about all those who preached and proclaimed the good news so that it eventually came to us. And so we, we thank you for all those things and give you all praise for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.